This is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. Converge is a show about what it takes to create interesting things. Sometimes our best efforts break down. Other times we create magic. Making something from nothing and shipping it for others to embrace or reject is not for the faint of heart. It's for the brave. Said different, Converge is for you. These conversations with artists and entrepreneurs put real lives on display as they make their best contributions to a world in need. With each episode, you'll get the chance to consider new ways to live and work in the creative economy. Converge is made possible thanks to Cantilever.co. Cantilever is a web design and development consultancy serving clients who want better results online. If your organization is trying to send a message, close more deals, or attract better talent, Cantilever can help. You can find them at cantilever.co. That's C-A-N-T-I-L-E-V-E-R dot C-O. Converge is also made possible thanks to tellmeyourdreams.com. They help your employees love their job. To find out more about how TMYD can help your organization attract, engage, and retain the best talent, and see a great example of Cantilever's work, head over to tellmeyourdreams.com. The impact of the internet on our modern lives is unmistakable. But what exactly have we learned? It's not new to us anymore. And after a couple of decades, it's fair to say it's matured. Despite the fact that there's a whole generation who grew up with it, I'm not convinced we're very skilled as a culture at best online practices. When it comes to our digital lives, doesn't it seem like the tail is wagging the proverbial dog sometimes? There's got to be better ways of relating with this thing, especially for creatives in business. But what are those deeper understandings? And how do we find them? I'm not sure I can think of many people more qualified to help us with these questions than Corbett Barr. As a former Fortune 500 consultant turned Silicon Valley VC-funded tech entrepreneur, turned Tim Ferriss-inspired living in Mexico professional blogger solopreneur, turned educational platform builder and pioneer of the audience-first as opposed to product-first playbook for building digital businesses, Corbett Barr is an absolute authority on this topic. Corbett believes it's time to reassess and redefine our relationship with the internet. And by the time this interview is through, you may too. What I love most about Corbett is his inquisitive approach to life, constantly looking for better ways to do it all, which he acknowledges we can't. So how do we choose? It turns out a little experience and thoughtfulness can go a long way. Corbett Barr, welcome to Converge. Dane, thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. I'm so excited. I've been kind of nervous, overly preparing. This is that kind of conversation for me, mainly because I know what you've been doing for the last decade plus, and some of my listeners don't. So I'm wondering if you could get folks up to speed as to what you've, what brings you to today? Okay. <laughs> That's a well, big question. <laughs> I, I think like a lot of people, I jumped into a career not really knowing what I wanted from life or how what I did for a living would impact my life and my lifestyle and so on. I just knew that I wanted to make some money and be useful in some way. Found myself working in Fortune 500 companies as a consultant. At some point, just kind of realized that I wasn't going to be fulfilled by helping yet another massive corporation get like just a tiny, tiny percentage point more efficient because of the work that I was doing. Hmm. 
So I thought for a moment that entrepreneurship might be my savior. It was something that I had always kind of had in the back of my mind, wondering if maybe I had what it took to be an entrepreneur and wondering if being my own boss might not be the answer to everything that I wanted from life. Not exactly sure what I wanted from life, just wanted to see what that chapter would look like. So I jumped with both feet into a Silicon Valley startup. And, and what, what era was that? Like what year? This was in 2005. My wife and I had moved to San Francisco because she was going to grad school there as a fine artist. That was the culture in San Francisco, still is, Silicon Valley. And I reconnected with an old colleague who was working on a startup idea. And next thing I know, I was a co-founder in that thing. That version of entrepreneurship, that startup model made me have less freedom than I expected and less freedom than I did as a Fortune 500 consultant because now I had a board of directors, advisors, a co-founder, employees, an office on top of customers and everything else to worry about. However, you know, I think I I was fine going down that path despite all the emotional roller coaster and and everything else that goes along with it except that in in 2008 there's all this talk of a bubble now. Well, we're 12 <laughs> years removed from the previous one, or 13, I guess. In that 2008 financial collapse, we were kind of caught in a bad position because the startup I was running did not have revenue to sustain itself, and we had to go hat in hand to our venture capital investors. Really just ended up with poor a poor negotiating position and, and poor terms. And that's when I decided to exit the startup my wife and I actually decided to, instead of just jumping into the next thing, we took a sabbatical road trip to Mexico. And that's mm. kind of where my life changed. What, what, <laughs> what a great teaser. What, what happened south of the border? What happened? Well, you know, I, I was still kind of on this quest to understand how my life and my career would fit together. And while we were down here, I say here because I'm actually in Mexico now, I've returned every winter since then. While we were down here, we met people who had figured out ways to make their careers work around their lives instead of the other way around. Hmm. And I guess up until that point, I had this vision of basically you had to either work really hard, hoping that you could retire a little bit early and then do what you wanted with your life. Or maybe you were an entrepreneur and you swung for the fences, hoping to make a bunch of money in a short but painful period of time and then go on to do what you wanted to do with your life next. But I started meeting people who took a different approach that I didn't know was possible, and that was basically, I'm going to live my life now while I'm young and vibrant, and I'm going to construct a career that allows me to do what I want. And at the time for me, and, and this was before you could do a lot of work online, I guess, and before remote work was really a thing. Mm. But the time I, I really wanted to be able to define my day, plan my schedule, decide when I worked, what I worked on, and to be able to live and work from anywhere in the world to be able to travel and do that. And kind of a tall order at the time, but it was around the time that blogging was becoming really popular and also around the time that Tim Ferriss had released his book, The 4-Hour Workweek. It's almost a definitive new rich approach of, of not living for retirement, but leveraging the emerging technologies and mechanisms of trade and communication to 
to really design a, a life is what yeah. I'm hearing. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I, I would say so. You know, I ended up starting a blog sort of on a whim to ask myself these questions out loud and to start a conversation around it. And that was really just wondering about the relationship between life and career and how many of the things that most of us kind of took for granted actually had to be true and and how many of them were just in place because of social and cultural norms and hmm. because you know that's how we're raised in school hmm. and so on. So I started that blog and I guess initially I thought that I would build another startup but this time around pay more attention to how I built it so that I I didn't feel so burdened by all of the different interests involved. I actually ended up discovering a, another way of building a, a company, and and that was instead of going product first, where you come up with an idea of something that you want to sell to people, instead you build an audience first, and then figure out what it is that they might want to buy from you. Hmm. And that seems, I guess, like a subtle difference, except that in my previous attempts at entrepreneurship, the biggest problem was always after you created the product, finding the people. And not only that, but creating something along the way before you knew those people that you were sure that those people would be interested in. And that's, you know, probably the biggest risk of entrepreneurship is just spending a lot of time working on something only to find out that nobody actually wants it. Yeah, that that notion of finding that fit, it, it does sound like a catch-22 though. So whether you go product first or audience first, you're still going to have a dilemma. Don't you have the same problem on the other side where you built your audience and then you have to figure out your product? In some ways, yes. You always have to figure out a product that they're going to want, except that if the audience is there, if the people who you believe will be buying that product because they have expressed some sort of a problem or a need or desire to you Mm. through your interactions in creating content and having conversations with them, then those people are there to try things out. They're there to answer questions. They're there to have customer conversations with. And all of the really important things that you need to do when you're building a product, but that a lot of people overlook because it can be kind of painful to have those conversations. You know, I think a lot of people think of the entrepreneur as this all-knowing inventor who goes away and toils on a product only to release it to the world later. But in reality, not talking to customers is is one of the quickest ways to fail. Mm. So by having that audience first, you are just basically creating this built-in way of having conversations with your audience so that you have more certainty that the product you come up with will be useful to people and that there will be people there who will purchase it. So it's almost as though the audience becomes an asset on your balance sheet. It's access to them. It becomes an extra resource for communication, for insight, for testing, for seeing where you're stupid or dumb, <laughs> or, or at least making assumptions that aren't accurate. Whereas if you go product first, you're really starting from no momentum. There's nothing to push or a big thing to push, but not clear on how you're going to push or who you're going to push toward. Yeah, exactly. And building an audience is is an exercise in appealing to people's desires. And Mm -hmm. if you are unable to build an audience when you're offering something for free, it's really difficult to imagine being able to build an audience when you have something that they have to pay for. So in other words, if you can collect people's interest because you are producing 
written content, audio, video, that sort of thing, because you're addressing either a need or a desire that they have, that's a good sign. It means that there's something that they want. The next step is just to figure out if they would be willing to pay for a solution to that thing. But if you go the other direction and you create a product first, then you're not sure if you can even appeal to people in the first place with something for free. And again, it just comes down to the risk that we all face as entrepreneurs, and that is that we're going to put a bunch of time and effort into something without any guarantee that people are going to ultimately reward you for it. I love that. And I and I love the, the nod to kind of the ve- vehicle by which you get there. So having a take around some sense of felt need or a desire, and then speaking to that, whether it's speaking with words or th- through some other media, some other content piece, building this audience, developing trust. And then over time, ideas turn into potentially into products or things that we can deliver. And you can begin, it's built in, you have to test it. I want to come back to the desires need thing, specifically around organizations that do this at scale and build Mm. around that. (laughs) We'll come back to it, I'm sure. I don't want to miss what came next for you, because obviously it started with this blog, but then you've helped thousands of creators online do very similar things, audience first, business building around lifestyle design. So talk a little bit about that transition and fizzle. Yeah. So, you know, starting a blog was this like major milestone in my life. It did a number of things for me. Of course, building an audience is one of the most important results of it. And I was surprised that I was able to build an audience and learn about all kinds of things like search engine optimization and and so on. But it also really just allowed me to explore writing, which is something I had you know, done in a business and in a school sense, but never for myself. And also writing has this ability to really make you crystallize your thoughts and go a lot deeper on a particular topic than you would if you were just having the occasional conversation with someone. Mm. So I am forever grateful that I discovered blogging because of my connection to writing and also because of my ability to build an audience there. When you say you were surprised... I'm surprised that you were surprised. I mean, way before you were blogging, you were a charismatic individual that people paid attention to. So I I, I know that I'm in a lot of conversations with my listeners who tell me that maybe they're more introverted or they're like, why would anyone care about what I have to say? Or why would I want to create something and get rejected? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But I'm sure I'm surprised to hear you say that. It's all about scale. You know, it's one thing to be able to have a conversation with a few people. You know, it's yet another to speak on a stage, of course, and and to try to captivate several hundred people. But with a blog, over time, I've been able to reach millions of people between blogging and podcasting and producing videos and so on. And so I think that that level of scale kind of surprised me. We were still living in the age of gatekeepers, where most people who had some sort of public persona were there because they operated within the TV networks or the publishing networks or whatever it was that held the keys to the audience. And you, you know, basically had to shop around a proposal for some sort of media that you wanted to publish. And that idea of going direct to an audience is only 15 years old or so Mm. at this point and, Mm. and to be able to do it at scale. So I think now we sort of take that for granted, but it is Mm. a modern miracle. Yeah. It, well, it's so funny. The other night, my wife and I watched Julie and Julia, the Julia Childs movie. Uh-huh. Remember that from a million years ago? Yep. And it was such a treat to go back and watch it. But I, I'm so curious, first of all, to go back and see that 
modern miracle that you're describing, now we do take it for granted. And now there are millions of people who are communicating online through various mediums. I know it's it's not pioneering days anymore, but is there still opportunity to find your voice in that medium? Absolutely. Some mediums are still growing. We see every year that podcasting, for example, becomes more and more popular. Everything is being hyper-segmented into smaller and smaller interest groups. And that's great because it means that if there's something that you're into, you no longer have to be satisfied with just the three network channels that are showing very vanilla sort of sitcoms to everyone at the same time. You can find something that appeals to you specifically. But it also means that each of us is able to follow our curiosity and really mm. dig deep into the dark corners of our interests and bring those to light. And it's likely that we will find other people online who are mm. also interested in those things. Mm. That's so good. And despite all of the different mediums that are out there, you mentioned podcasting, of course, there's YouTube, uh, good buddy of mine, Zach King has has tens of millions of followers across several channels, but it's all video. It, it appears as though the output is video, but at core and talking with him and talking to you, it feels like writing is this kind of fundamental skill set of which like out of which all the channels get filled. <laughs> is that accurate? I, I would say yes. I mean, for me, it is. If I'm going to produce a, an online course or a video or something, it almost always starts with writing. It's rare for someone to be able to just speak extemporaneously without at least creating an outline or a structure mm. or something and to have it come out at, as something that's mm. really coherent. So for me, writing is core. I, I think for most people who produce things that are really interesting, writing is plays a, a big role at least. We'll be right back after this short break. Ty, you and I have talked about what you're trying to do with your customers, and you've described Cantilever as a hospitality company, and you make websites. What what does that even mean? So you know how you go to a lot of these websites and you're a number or you're trapped, and they're just trying to get as much ad revenue out of you as totally. they can while you're on the article, you know what I mean? Imagine that you're trying to get a message out, but the experience that people are having is awkward and inconvenient. So at Cantilever, what we try to do is give people an experience that is really comfortable and welcoming and really think of what they're trying to do when they come to a website. So instead of bombarding them with, with ads, we're thinking, where are they at in their lives that they're in this place where they're reading this article and what are they trying to get out of it? We try to make that really, really easy. We call that principle digital hospitality. You can do hospitality online. That's actually possible. It is, but it requires a translation of that hospitality skill set into a digital environment. And one of the things that's really powerful about trying to do hospitality online is that it involves a lot of technology. And there are countless ways that you can build incredible, powerful code bases that are oriented around a user's experience. So they're not just there to do something cool. You're doing cool things so that you can give people a better and better experience. If you're listening to this and you want to do that for your website, go to cantilever.co. Check them out. But then you spend a lot of time in partnership with our friend, a uh, common friend, uh, Chase Reeves, and, and a team of folks really helping thousands of brands go and do likewise. I, again, I want to hear more about Fizzle and, and that project. Yeah. So Fizzle is basically a, a training library coaching and community for entrepreneurs that we've run since 2013. The thing is, 
it has served thousands and thousands of people over the years. And it has become this amazing project. But it, it started very simply in that I just created an online course, a single online course back in 2010. And this was before there was course software hmm. out there. It was before. No Kajabi. Yeah, no Kajabi, no, no right. Teachable, right. nothing like that. No learning management system. So you really just kind of had to roll your own. And it was at a time when a lot of people were writing things called ebooks, which was basically just a way to sell a book yeah. online. But I took what I thought might be an ebook and turned it into an online course, which really was just written content with a little bit of audio bonus thrown in there. There wasn't even video in it at the time. But from there, I ended up creating more courses and just wanted to pull them all together in one place to make it a bit of a coherent journey that people could go on if they were working towards entrepreneurship. And so that I didn't necessarily have to create all of the material myself. I could involve other instructors and so on. And that's what ended up becoming Fizzle. Since then, we've produced hundreds of hours of video. And as I said, we've served thousands yeah, of Yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazing resource. And it, it is that combination of best practices learned through a combination of trial and error and, and just being in the thick of it, even that it was a throwaway line. But 2013 is like what is that in internet years to now? Like a billion years? Like it feels like that is an extraordinarily long period of time where you would develop a world-class set of expertise that you have been sharing and and you do it with personality and fun and it's just entertaining. It's I've, I've been shocked, even just your podcast, I've been shocked to see myself listening for as long as I do, mainly because I just want to listen to you. Like <laughs> I'm just drawn mm. into the dialogue but in that, you know, 2013 and 2021 are different planets and the world has changed a lot. And you have reset recently in how you're relating with the internet. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that and, and some of the why behind it. Yeah. It, it, and you're right. Internet years are long. You try a lot of things because you never know which are going to pay off and, and which aren't. I ended up with what I felt like was digital baggage. And this is just cruft, things that are out there that maybe you thought would serve a purpose but didn't, and yet they still just exist. And I, I think that it's only recently that every little thing we've uttered has existed online for the entire world to see. And the idea that it should exist forever in that form is very unnatural in a, in a human way. Throughout human history, of course, we have produced things that we expect to live for a very long time. You know, think about art and books and so on. But those were finished products. Those are things that people put a lot of thought and effort into, and they meant for it to stand the test of time. If you're putting together a 700-page book and publishing it in a physical form, you expect that it is going to be available mm. for a very long time. If you wake up in the middle of the night and blurt something out on Facebook, you don't necessarily expect that that's going mm. to exist forever, mm. nor should it. But in its default form, it does because these things don't expire. So I had just started feeling like I needed some mental space. And one of the ways that I decided to create that mental space was by removing a huge chunk of the things that I had produced over the years that I didn't feel was particularly noteworthy or serving a current purpose 
And I also closed a number of accounts, social media accounts specifically, that I didn't necessarily enjoy spending time on. I would say I am really grateful for doing that because it opened up this sense of possibility that I hadn't felt for a while, almost like, ah, I'm not beholden to those things anymore. And I can make some new decisions and set some new direction. Almost that feeling that you got back when we used to all work in regular careers between jobs. When you left a job and you weren't yet started on your new one, you felt this like enormous sense of freedom between the two because that old stuff wasn't my problem anymore. I think online we were lacking that in a lot of ways because it's just one continuous fluid mm. existence sort of creating this artificial separation, I was able to gain some of that that feeling of freedom that I hadn't mm. had in quite a while. Powerful. It's funny, my own existential experience when I think about giving up certain channels, not with like millions of followers, but not an insignificant number of, of folks who are tuned in, it feels existentially scary to cut off from those channels. It feels, at least to me, if I'm honest. Did you, and you have significant folks tuned in to you. Did that feel nerve-wracking to you at all? Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, maybe what kept me and what keeps so many people around long after they stop feeling many benefits from being mm. on those platforms. And that's just the the fear of missing out on conversations that are happening, missing out on connections that you have, and of doing some damage either to your social standing, mm. your reputation, mm. or your business. And, you know, those are legitimate concerns. I didn't do this. I, I had been thinking about leaving several platforms for a very long time, for years, and didn't find the courage to do it until I started diving a lot deeper. And some of this, for folks who are listening to tune into, if you haven't already, I mean, most most humans, I think, who are online have seen The Social Dilemma. But if you haven't, if you saw it and then kind of forgot about it, it might be worth a, a refresher uh, it's a fantastic documentary with some fantastic authoritative voices on there that are worth paying attention to. And for me, at least, that that kind of motivated it. But I, I want to go back to something you said early in this conversation, which is when you were blogging and you were building audience first and you were thinking about what are the desires and needs of these people who are are generously tuned in to me? What might they pay for? What might I? What kind of a product would I create? That sounds ominously close to some of the motivation behind some of these big platforms. Like they're interested in desires and needs. And can you talk a little bit about maybe ways that you think independents can do that differently than organizations that are peddling to advertisers? Well, yeah. I mean, I think every transaction, every monetary transaction is based on some sort of a, a need or desire yeah. that's being fulfilled. So if if you're going to earn a living you're going to be in that need slash desire business. It just depends on how you leverage mm. it, I would say. As an individual creator, you have all kinds of freedom in the decisions that you make and how you want to serve your customers and what actions you want to take. I mean, it, it comes down to some simple things like on your website, do you want to have a bunch of pop-ups show up when someone visits your blog to try to capture their email address? And there are tons of little decisions like that that you can make that can either represent your business interests, or they can represent the world in which you want to live. I don't see any ill effect to my business not being on those platforms. And I think you can put energy into other platforms 
and receive similar benefits. For example, podcasting, email, RSS, your own website, these are all protocols and these are all places that you can own the relationship with your customer without having an intermediary involved, without having someone who owns the platform. And I would rather spend my time building up those things if the benefits are going to be similar than spending time building someone else's mm. wall. Are you on any channels? Uh, I am. I'm currently on Twitter and that's just because I'm taking baby steps. I'm not saying that I uh -huh. will always be there. I didn't want to completely turn everything off, but also Twitter out of all the places that I spent is a place where I happen to have rich connections. I find what I find to be good information for some reason doesn't annoy <laughs> or depress me in the same way that other platforms do. But I think everyone is different and I can certainly see why people would fault Twitter because it has its own problems as well. My patron saint in this space is like many is Seth Godin. And mm. I, I think Seth has been so he was so ahead of his time mm -hmm. and he, where, where is he spending his time on all channels that he owns 100%. <laughs> yes. And he'll leverage things uh, periodically, but I, I like your point about, he's also saying it's okay, but he's also has no problem. He's free. He can say whatever he wants in any of those spaces because he's not he's not beholden or he's not nervous. I remember the first time he said, "If we're friends on Facebook, just know we're not friends." And uh, <laughs> uh, and I thought that's right. You're a curator. Like you've curated where you are. You've curated how you are with who you are. You've your values are are clear and declared. And I guess I'm. Wondering, is that an existential process that people should go through and get clear on in advance of of engaging online, or it, was that is that just a big speed bump that they shouldn't they should just get in the game and discover those things as they go? That's my first question. Then I'll have a second in a second. Yeah, well, I I would say that you know there, you're not going to do any massive damage to yourself if you just follow your curiosity and try different things out, and and you will eventually know whether or not it fits within your value system or or your you know existential desires it's okay just to follow your curiosity i also really want people to know that they don't have to do anything you can mm. succeed following your own path and we're all just making it up as we go along mm. anyone you know, any sort of guru or or any strong voice online who's telling you that you have to do this or you have to do that if you want to succeed is either deep into a dogma for some reason or they have something to sell you. And, and you can find the truth just by looking deep again into different corners of the internet and finding people who succeed in all different ways. And, you know, Seth Godin, that's a great example. Like you mentioned, he's someone who has never participated meaningfully in social media, continues to be relevant to this day, even though the internet has changed a lot since he started publishing way, way back. If you're just getting started, just, you know, be true to yourself. All of this, the best part is that it can all be changed relatively quickly. You can you know, delete content, you can move content, you can remake yourself. And all of that stuff can happen relatively quickly because this is a digital medium as opposed to a physical one, which um, makes the mistakes a little bit easier to live with and move on from. That's amazing because I, I think a lot of folks are, are kind of scared right now. Cancel culture and 
like I even think of my kids. I have three teenagers and one 21 year old and my oldest is is anti exposure online. <laughs> Just be as quiet as possible, except for with a really tight group of friends. But and then the others, the the level of editorial work that they do to, for how they present themselves is um, amazing. I'm exhausted just watching them think through the implications of of a post. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's uncommon. But what I'm hearing you say is like, well, maybe be a good person and try stuff, and then be honest in the process. Is I mean. Yeah. Uh, what do you and, do, what do you do when you screw up? Right. <laughs> or, and, and and I don't want to be naive because I know that you know people feel like their lives have been ruined by something that that occurred online and because an angry mob came after them or something and and you know knock wood thankfully that's never happened to me but I also you know I'm careful about what I say I try to be a real honest caring person but at the same time you know I think people's memories are very short. It's likely that it will pass quickly. I think also that the other side of cancel culture is that we see there is always a group that is supportive of the person who was quote unquote canceled because there is this pushback. And so I think there are some angles that you could play there depending on what you were what you were shunned for and and whether or not you need to take time to reflect and change your behavior or if you actually believe in what you said and and what happened. Mm-hmm. So I you know I'm I'm not an expert by any means on cancel culture. I try to operate just in an educational kind of space. I don't, you know, publish a lot of things about myself personally, and that's one of the really nice things about not being on social media anymore for me, at least on Instagram, Facebook and so on, and and that is that my personal life is really an in-person kind of thing or maybe text messages with actual friends. My digital self now is much more of a purpose-driven earning a living kind of pursuit as opposed to just sharing randomly everything that's going on with me. Mm. Well, I think one of the reasons why friends who are listening that I would strongly encourage you to go to corporatebar.com and, and tune into some of the means by which you can be around Corbett is because not only is he interested in being real, honest and caring online, that's a reflection of him being real, honest and caring in reality in the physical <laughs> reality. And, and of course, fizzle.co and any other places, uh, it feels like a great place to start is your newsletter and your blog, but anything else that uh, places that if people wanted to keep in this conversation with you, where would they go? Yeah. I think my, my personal blog over at corporatebar.com is the best place to start. It has all of the, the recent thinking, anything that Dane and I have talked about today, probably there's something on that site that will dive deeper. Well, I am so grateful, man, and just respect the hell out of you, man, for what you have done and, and the work you've done and the way in which you are willing to share. Uh, it's a gift to a lot of people. So thank you. Thanks for giving me a platform to talk about it. And uh, I appreciate being here, Dane. This was episode two, season six of the Business of Creativity podcast. Converge is made possible thanks to cantilever.co and tellmeyourdreams.com. For all our past evergreen episodes with guests like Seth Godin, James Clear, 
Ann Handley, Ryan Holiday, Jazz Ampafar, Donald Miller, Mike Michalowicz, Sarah Green Carmichael, Brad Montague, Kevin Kelly, Todd Henry, Scott Stratton, Chase Reeves, Gretchen Rubin, Chris Gillibo, Starley Kine, and more. Go to ConvergePodcast.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. See you next time. An Ironic Media Production. Visit us at ironicmedia.com.